Hi, everyone. Welcome to another episode of The Carbon Curve. I'm your host, Naeem Merchant, and this is a podcast about the policies, technologies, and collective action needed to remove billions of tons of carbon dioxide from the atmosphere and fend off the worst effects of climate change. Before we get started, I'm excited to announce that Carbon Removal Canada is hosting its official launch event in Ottawa on November 8th from 4 to 6 p.m. We'll be sharing the findings from our first report on the potential size and economic opportunity of scaling carbon removal in Canada, and how we can close the policy gap with other jurisdictions like the US and Europe. We'll have David Keith, founder of Carbon Engineering, delivering a keynote address, followed by an engaging panel discussion with industry leaders and over 100 CDR innovators, business leaders, and policymakers in attendance. If you can attend, there's a registration link at carbonremoval.ca, or you can check the show notes for more information. Okay, on to the episode. Ocean-based carbon removal methods continue to pick up steam, from sizable investments in ocean CDR companies, the formation of new organizations like the Carbon to Sea Initiative, and major grants to research institutions like Dalhousie University. The potential scale opportunity is immense, but a number of important uncertainties remain. In today's episode, I unpack the opportunity, the risks, and the endgame, or as my guest calls it, the victory condition for carbon removal from the vantage point of the oceans. If you enjoyed this episode, please subscribe to this podcast at carboncurve.substack.com or through your favorite podcast app. Okay, let's get started. Hi, everyone. My guest today is Marty Odlin. Marty is the founder and CEO of Running Tide, a global ocean health company. A systems engineer from a fourth-generation fishing family, Marty founded the company in 2017 after seeing the devastating implications of climate change on his own community. Running Tide designs and deploys cutting-edge diagnostics and comprehensive interventions that rebalance the carbon cycle, decarbonize global supply chains, restore marine ecosystems, and revitalize coastal communities. Proudly headquartered in Portland, Maine, Running Tide is scaling worldwide in partnerships with leading investors, companies, scientific institutions, and governments. Marty, welcome to the show. Thank you. Thank you for having me. So you have a really interesting and diverse set of experience. You've got a background in robotics and offshore fishing, for example. What led you to the carbon removal space and what motivated you to start Running Tide? I was very, very fortunate to grow up in a community and family of commercial fishermen. And, you know, that was a lot of my formative experiences happened on the waterfront and on boats. And, you know, dinner table conversation for us was sustainable management of fisheries. That was what we all debated and talked about. Growing up in that environment, you know, family of outdoorsmen and commercial fishermen and being really focused my whole life on the relationship that humans have with their natural resources and natural environment was really formative for me. And I just, that's part of my life and has guided me through everything. The framing I look at the world is through that lens and it's just, there's no other way for me because that's the world I grew up in. Then, you know, I was very precocious with engineering growing up. I was drawn to those aspects of the, you know, commercial fishing industry above all others. And so... I was really fortunate enough that, you know, I could go to college for engineering. I went to Dartmouth College over in New Hampshire and got exposed to a lot of amazing things. That was like a really great time to be there. You know, came in contact with William McDonough's work, Cradle to Cradle, you know, Gaia Hypothesis from James Lovelock and some of those really, I think early, I mean, those are relatively early in the journey of, you know, the sustainability and circular economy thinking. So I was immediately drawn to that. 
obviously from my background. And then I just coupled that with an interest in industrial systems. So those were the two aspects of my background, you know, natural resource management and kind of a fascination with what that means and how that can be done sustainably. And I like turning wrenches and working in industrial systems. I think it's really fun to work in a production environment. So yeah, I feel like those kind of two things were very core to me early on. And then, you know, Peb and removal is the nexus of those two things, I think. So I was on a collision course with this, no matter what, but for sure, growing up on the water, you know, surfing, fishing, you know, being out in nature all the time, it's, you know, growing up in Maine, that's the culture of Maine for sure. And just the changes have been undeniable in terms of climate change. No matter how skeptical you get, if you're out there in the environment, you can see it and it's just undeniable. So over time, over the course of my career, as I had this background in industrial systems, running fishing business, I had a stint in academia, helping researchers at Columbia University. All of that kind of was, was catalyzed by just watching this degradation of the natural environment. It got to a point where it was like, okay, nobody's doing anything. Like I have to do something. I just felt the duty to get involved directly in carbon removal. Well, we're grateful you stepped in. And we noticed that Running Tide recently released a research roadmap, which we can include a link to. But could you first set the stage for us a little bit in talking a bit about the difference between the fast and slow carbon cycles? And you and I briefly met at an MRV workshop, I think sometime late last year. Yeah, November. And I remember we had a chance to get into this a little bit about the importance yeah. of thinking about things in terms of a fast and slow carbon cycle and the rate at which natural processes can transfer carbon from the slow to fast cycle and vice versa. Do you want to maybe tell us a little bit more about that and your thinking on the fast and slow carbon cycle? The approach that I think is most helpful when we're talking about carbon removals, first, we have to think about what the victory condition is. Like, what is the end state of the world that we want to achieve through the carbon removal industry? I think we have to start with that because that contextualizes everything else. And to me, we want to revert to pre-industrial levels of CO2 in the fast cycle or in the atmosphere. And no one really knows the exact number that that will take in terms of actual removal, but say it's like on the order of one and a half trillion tons of carbon have to get removed in order to reach that end state. So totally disconnected from, you know, we also have to decarbonize, but these are two separate things. So if you're talking about 1500 gigatons of mass movement, net mass movement from the fast cycle to the slow cycle. That's the victory condition. Largest movement of mass in human history, effectively, because it's going to be done over a compressed timeline. So just incredible production ramp, incredible amount of material to move. And I think you have to hold that in your head while you talk about any other aspect of carbon removal, because what we're talking about is realigning industrial systems around the world to achieve that end. So... I think that's an important contextualization. So then you can get into fast to slow, because if you're talking about a movement of mass and, and a, an orientation of society on that level, you have to have something that is the correct framing, the correct engineering framing of this problem. You have to have something that's translatable to people around the world. The person driving the dump truck in Northern Maine is going to be engaged in this effort, needs to be able to understand it. A farmer in Uttar Pradesh, in India, needs to be able to understand it so that they can engage with it. Uh, this can't be this super esoteric thing that 15 people in the world understand how all this is calculated. You're not going to engage society on a 1500 gigaton mass movement level to achieve that end. Also, when you're moving 1500 gigatons of material or mass, the fuzziness at the edges doesn't matter. There's a bunch of feedback loops 
for instance, that just become like irrelevant at that scale of, of process. If you're talking about moving one ton of mass, it's very different than if you're talking about 1,500 billion tons of mass. So in, in the grand scheme of things, if that's the victory condition that we're trying to achieve, we're trying to build an industry that can achieve that amount of material movement. We have to be able to engage society broadly and we have to have formulations, accounting systems, et cetera, that are translatable to people that are going to do the work and will understand where one to 2% of global GDP is going. I think it's really important from a communications perspective that we, we keep in mind that what we're asking society to do is tax itself to the order of one to 2% of global GDP to achieve this end. And I think my broad criticism of the, of the urban removal effort thus far is that we have not been doing a very good job of engaging with people and trying to communicate to people at a level that can catalyze action. So preamble to fast to slow, you know, there are two carbon cycles. Fast cycle is the coupled system of the biosphere, atmosphere, and upper layers, the oceans. Slow cycle is effectively geologic storage. So underground recalcitrant soil carbons a little bit on the edge. That's a fun conversation to have. And then the bottom layer of the ocean, non-mixing layer of the ocean. If we're talking about a compliance or voluntary carbon market, there are corporations who are generating, who are right now on the hook to pay for carbon removal. That's how we're going to pay for it for a while is through, you know, net zero commitments through corporations. Those carbon liabilities are getting generated on a slow to fast framing. That's everyone has to understand that you emit carbon, dig up some coal and you burn it and it goes into the fast cycle. Some of it's going to end up in trees. Some of it's going to end up in the ocean. Some of it's going to end up in the atmosphere. Nobody's counting where it goes, right? It's slow to fast and that's a liability on their balance sheet. So if you're a CFO in a company, all you're looking at is slow to fast emissions. By definition, if you have a slow to fast liability, the only way to offset that is with a fast to slow credit. That's just like, financial math. That's how it works. If you borrow a dollar from a bank, you can't pay back with an apple. You have to pay back with a dollar. So if we're generating these liabilities on a slow to fast basis, fast to slow is the framing of a credit that will offset that activity. And I think that's great because it does nest with the good engineering definitions. The financial definition and the engineering definition are exactly the same. So I think that that's great. The fastest slow is something we worked on a lot at our company because we were thinking, well, how do you communicate this to people in a way that is, is translatable across languages, across understandings of the world? And this is like a framing that people can grab onto. And different groups have started to pick up on that framing because it translates so well. You can explain it to a six-year-old. You can explain it to people from diverse economic and education backgrounds. It does translate fairly well across a lot of languages, so... I think it's a strong framing and I think that it matches the financial definition and the engineering definition as well. So I think that it's something that as an industry, we should keep in mind. And I think that the potential criticisms of it are like, oh, well, it lacks the nuance of like, for instance, air sea flux is something that happens in the ocean, right? It's something you have to account for. We can get into that and happy to talk endlessly, but you know, stuff like that just kind of like blurs out on the margins, super important to understand. We want to understand all aspects of the carbon cycle, but the relevance of certain aspects of carbon accounting get blurred out when you're going fast to slow. And I actually think that's a good thing because if we get trapped in this myopic and Byzantine maze of like how to for all these things, we're actually going to lose the ability to engage society fully into this effort, which I think is the most important thing. Yeah, I couldn't agree more on the need to find a way to talk about carbon removal in a way that that makes sense to a broad group of people who have 
so many other things to think about and worry about and solve problems around. It's incumbent on us to try to find a way of talking about this work in a way that makes sense to people who don't spend their days and nights on figuring out how to move from the fast to slow cycle, which I think is a helpful framing in the sense that, that in terms of this kind of accounting definition and this liability, but actually let's dive into the ocean carbon cycle a little bit as well. I mean, yeah. that's kind of where running tide is is operating. I'd love to hear a bit more about, about running tide's actual kind of process itself and how you're mm-hmm. aiming through your process to increase, you know, the rate of some of these kind of the, the, the ocean carbon cycle processes we're talking about. Yeah. So there's basically two ways to remove carbon at like global scales in the ocean. It's you're sinking biomass, so you're accelerating the biological pump of the ocean which exists, or you're increasing the solubility pump, which is essentially shifting the carbonate balance in the ocean to, you know, lock up, dissolve CO2 into carbonate form. Yeah, those are the two main pathways. Now, a lot of alkalinity stuff in the biological pump activity can happen on shore and then it flows out into the ocean. But like, if you look at kind of how carbon gets removed in the world, that's about it. Those are the two kind of massive scale systems. So running tide works on both. So there's two CDR pathways that work in the ocean, they are not decoupled. I think that there's an idea going on in the carbon removal community that I think is super dangerous, that these are decoupled systems and you can work on them both independently. That is not true. Like if you adjust the solubility pump, you adjust the alkalinity in the ocean, you are affecting biological activity and vice versa. Algae, macroalgae, they affect the solubility pump as well. So these are coupled systems, no matter how you formulate it. They are not independent and they must be studied and measured as coupled systems. That's my personal view. I think that's broadly the understanding of the oceanographic community writ large. I think that there are some, you know, there are elements of it that think that these things are independent. I think that's hugely dangerous to to approach these problems. It's like decoupled systems because there are interactions and we need to account for those. I think we're going to get community pushback if we don't. Most people that are really engage in the fisheries and care about the recruitment of different species and how the food chain works are very aware of the, how coupled those are. So I think that we risk blowback if we try to treat them separately. A little soapboxing there. Sorry about that. So those are two systems that we're working on. Biomass sinking, the biological pump enhancement, and alkalinity enhancement. Running tide approaches both. And, you know, effectively, we think that the most, the most scalable way that integrates into industrial systems and will be the most efficient way to change is to spread non-recoverable drifters out on the surface of the ocean to make small adjustments to this pump. So it's kind of all happens at the surface of the ocean. We spread out little drifters. They're non-recoverable. Here's one. Here's a version of them. And we don't try to get them back. So we just put stuff in the ocean and let it float. And then what we try to do is make sure that what we put in the ocean accelerates either the biological pump or the alkalinity, the solubility pump, or both. Here's a potential alkaline float that we're prototyping, just happened to be on my desk, paperweight. But this will float on the surface of the water and dissolve and release alkaline materials, which will enhance the solubility pump. The highest margin, highest leverage one we think, and maybe one of the best ultimate solutions is to grow macroalgae on these non-recoverable drifters. We drop them in the ocean, they float around, we sprayed some macroalgae spores on them that'll grow macroalgae, accumulate PCO2 out of the water, dissolve carbon dioxide out of the water, 
And then the, the drifter infiltrates with water, comes waterlogged, gets heavier than water, and then sinks and drags all of that into the deep ocean. There's a few reasons why we think that's a fantastic approach. You know, one, like I surveyed every approach for carbon removal from 2008 to 2012. And this to me is one of the better end solutions. One of the reasons why is the biological pump generally is either terrestrial biomass flowing into the ocean, phytoplankton or macroalgae dying and sinking to the deep ocean. This kind of taps into all three. Macroalgae versus microalgae, I'm a big fan of enhancing the phytoplankton pump as well. But macroalgae has higher utilization of nutrients in the ocean, higher C to N ratio or C to P ratio or C to iron ratio or what have you. So given a given amount of nutrients that you want to, you know, utilize in the ocean, you're going to get a lot more carbon bank for your buck off macroalgae than microalgae. I think taking biomass from shore and putting it in the deep ocean makes a lot of sense as well. So we're kind of tapping into those, those solutions. And uh, yeah, the ultimate reason why we think macroalgae will win is you get really good mass transfer ratio. You move a given amount of mass and you remove more carbon than that, which is like pretty rare in carbon removal. Normally you're the other way. And also it's just a really efficient uptake of nutrients for the carbon. Just enhancing the biological pump, but whether it's terrestrial biomass flowing through rivers offshore, phytoplankton dying or macroalgae dying, we know all of those are slowing down. The natural processes are slowing down. That's consensus in science that that is slowing down. The two worries that we could have for our carbon removal approach I'll just bring them up now, are, you know, benthic impacts, like you've heard the deep ocean. I think that's super unlikely because we're distributing these things over huge areas. They're spreading out. It's not like an overload one area. Secondly, what we're doing is actually for a long time, we're just going to be restoring the biological pump. You know, it's already slowing down. The benthic layer of the ocean is fed by calories falling from above, and we're trying to keep that going. So there's a long way from where we're at now to where we're even hitting baseline on that flux of calories into the deep ocean. And then along that way, we'll be studying this with our academic partners. And then, you know, before we actually trip over historic baselines and then get into like, okay, how much can we accelerate this? Second area of impact is on the surface layer of the ocean and something we have to measure quite a bit. Nutrient competition, phytoplankton versus macroalgae. Absolutely. That's something we're really committed to studying. As I showed you before we started, the first sensor we developed that our company that wasn't out there that we needed is a fluorometer to measure phytoplankton levels. That was step one. So first thing we built was this so that we could get high resolution of phytoplankton levels in the open ocean. And we put these in our sensor stack when it's out in the ocean so we can actually understand the impact we'll have. Generally, we feel like been you know, this is backed up with calculations and observations and best available science. We think we're going to have relatively small impacts, almost de minimis impacts on phytoplankton levels in the open ocean. The next impact that we could have at the surface would be interactions with animals, specifically like whales and those types of things. And we're constantly iterating on our design to reduce those impacts. But what we're talking about are very, very small things. At some formulations of the design and the other designs for seaweed sinking have these big giant rafts or big things with long lines attached to them. And, you know, over time we've analyzed and eschewed all of those, mostly based off either just like the complexity of operating things like that, or just the potential impacts on marine life. So we've just kind of eschewed that and we're going with really small, small systems. So. Yeah, broadly, we're super aware of potential impacts and those are really key to study, but we feel like we have a really efficient 
potentially hyper-efficient system for removing carbon that will offer very low costs and generally positive impacts on the ecosystems that we're working in. Yeah, and I'd love to get into some of those uncertainties and, and potential risks a little more, but you just mentioned costs and I'd love to kind of touch on that really quickly. What is the scaled cost of deploying your solution and what do you see as the major barriers to scale to achieve those costs at scale? Broadly, I think significantly under $50 a ton is achievable within about seven years. I think that's a pretty reasonable number that we could get to in seven years. I'm forecasting what's going to happen in the future, but I think that that's where it's achievable, which is super attractive. The palette of solutions that work at Earth System Scale really come down to a few things, which is like recalcitrant soil carbon, which is unknown right now, but I think is super attractive and really, really should study and back it. So that's like lone bio, living carbon, those types of solutions. You know, some biochar, I'm pretty excited by what is possible there. Let's say scale and costs that are able to be achieved. Number two is enhanced weathering, which is effectively alkalinity enhancements. Or as I like to joke, that's direct air capture, just not in a box. Or number three, biological pump enhancement and ocean alkalinity. Those three are all the ones that I think have a path to getting under $100 a ton quickly and at massive scale. So those are the ones really where I think we should be putting at least 50% of the funding behind. You know, I think direct air capture is great. It plays a role, but like we should be splitting our effort. Right now, the ratio is like 90-10 or 95-5 in terms of flow systems versus open systems. And I think that should be about 50-50. I think that's a more responsible level. Like I said, all those are out there. Now, each one of those, when you're deploying into nature, has uncertainties. They have uncertainties associated with them. Closed systems are really nice. Thermodynamically, they're not great. But the advantage is you're lining up CO2 particles and you can measure them. So it's like, okay, that's great from an accounting perspective. But from a scalability and cost, which is actually like, that's where the victory condition matters. What is your victory condition? If your victory condition is 1500 gigatons, like, hey, measuring every particle doesn't matter. That's not what matters. So yeah, these nature deployed systems, I think are super important. They all have associated uncertainties with them. Soil carbon is probably the most complex thing to measure. I'm pretty excited about it, but it's going to be really hard to measure because humans can get at it and you you can't predict what's going to happen. So you have a lot of monitoring issues, like ongoing monitoring issues that we have to account for. Like you need to model and make sure that there's no leakage, but it's not quite the same burden on the monitoring costs, but verifying that the activity happened and then making sure that it resulted in net movement of carbon from the fast cycle to the slow cycle is tricky. So The big challenge for nature deployed systems is overcoming those uncertainties. Now, specifically in the ocean, what are the uncertainties? I guess it's like to your original question, what are the uncertainties associated with our activity? First is, did the biological activity occur? Did it grow? You know, that I feel like is something we grappled with very early on in the company five years ago. It was like, okay, we're going to measure it through optical systems. So fluorometer, this is an optical system. We have machine vision cameras that can see macroalgae or growth, or we can actually scroll that down to microscopy and understand what's happening inside the biological system of the ocean. Second, there's physical transport. Where did things go? Did things end up over the thermocline? When they sunk, are they over a thousand meters? So will they stay down? That's super achievable through a set of you know physical transport sensors, GPS sensors, and accelerometers attached to these buoys that can give us a lot of information about where things go in the ocean. And we've developed really great systems to predict where things go. And then finally, did you net out? Like, 
how much carbon did you emit to get the thing out there? And it's really difficult. Like measuring industrial systems is really hard, but we've put a lot of effort into that. And we're relying on more best practices from other industries on that. So I think that when you couple those things together, there is uncertainty, but it's not something you can't overcome. It's about building the sensors and building the systems, building the models around them. You know, we've also developed an incredible ocean lab where we can actually mimic offshore conditions of anywhere in the ocean in the world. So surface roughness, temperature, light levels, nutrient levels. And we can actually do small scale interventions in these little wave tanks, see how that correlates to the offshore sensors that we have and our models and coupling the models, the in situ sensors and these lab based tests, we're able to get a really good picture of what's happening around our interventions out in the ocean. It's five years into the journey for running tide, 75 engineers working on this, 14 of them PhDs, academic institutions supporting us in different ways, and we're supporting them in different ways. You know, I think what we've built is the best effort that anyone's ever put for characterizing nature deployed systems for the purposes of carbon removal. I hope that my kids look at what we're doing right now and they're like, wow, you guys barely knew what you were doing. Like, I hope this system continues to evolve. It's not like we've solved it, but I think we've hit like a minimally viable level where we can proceed responsibly. So a lot to learn in front of us, but I think we've built up an incredible stack of systems and checks and balances and partners and understandings, you know, between all these different elements to make sure that we're doing the thing that we think we're doing. That's really compelling. I know very little about ocean-based CDRs, an area I'm still learning about more broadly. I'm maybe a little biased towards these closed systems because of that ability to track every molecule of CO2, though I take your point that when we get to that gigaton scale, we're not as worried about that. I worry right. though a little bit that the conversation around uncertainty as it relates to open systems is kind of stuck in this like, well, what percentage uncertainty are we willing to tolerate? And mm. like, what's that threshold? And I'm fine with that. If we land 10 years from now and we're doing ocean-based carbon removal and listen, there's a 20% plus or minus on what we're really removing, we can build that into how we're pricing this and how we're scaling and building, deploying all those things. The thing that worries me more is that when we're dealing with systems that are this open, our uncertainty level could be like 100% downstream somewhere else that we're not really tracking. And in my mind, it's important that we use these sensors and models to overcome some of that, but it feels like it's something that needs to be pretty global. So that any potential flux where a removal is being mistaken for a flux is like something that's being captured somewhere else where running tide might not have boundaries that go that far yeah. from someone like me who's new to ocean CDR. How do we overcome that level of uncertainty? I don't know that it's on running tide to figure it out. Maybe it's these broader systems that need to be in place. But when we get to really large scale, how do we know that it's having an impact and it's not just coming out some other side that's we're not tracking and and any one company can't be expected to track themselves. Does that make sense at all? Oh, oh, look, I mean, absolutely. No, absolutely. Grappling with this issue is why I always start with victory condition. And what I mean by that is you start with victory condition if we're going to remove this much carbon, okay, 1,500 gigatons of carbon. We're going to remove that much. What is true in order for that to happen? $250 trillion got spent, let's say, you know, roughly, right? I really don't like the term MRV, but how much of that went in quantification and understanding the system? I don't think it's unreasonable to say 10%. Okay. So that's $25 trillion went into understanding the earth system carbon cycle. And this is why it's important that we get started on our work and start making money because it's just more money flowing into it. 
that $25 trillion is orders of magnitude more money than has been spent on oceanography to this date or understanding the Earth system to this date. But carbon removal system at the end is going to enhance our understanding of the natural systems to a level we've never had. And that's just by definition of the victory condition. We are going to win this fight. I will not accept that we will not win this. I can't. I have to know that we're going to win. And if we're going to win, we're going to spend 10% of the money at least on quantification. And if we do that, we're increasing our understanding of the Earth system to levels we can't, you know, like beyond comprehension, step change difference in where we are right now. So to your point, I think you have a very, very good point that like, how do we measure all of this? Right now, we can't measure all of this. So how do we know for sure? How do we know for sure? And my answer to that is we do it and we figure it out along the way because we're going to be able to pour resources into understanding the system. Now, the key thing that I think is embedded in my formulation of carbon removal and the industry that we're going to build around it is we're going to always operate off best available science. So best available science is this concept that I think got generated in the fish in 1976 Magnus and Stevens Act about fisheries, where we have to operate on best available science to manage our fisheries. And watching that evolution over my lifetime, you know, my grandfather and my father were both heavily engaged in fisheries management. So we talk about best available science all the time. And to see best available science evolve has made me very comfortable with, hey, we get smarter over time, and then we will adjust our practices to suit whatever the best available model that we have is. I watched fisheries shift management protocols based off better science that evolved. And so I feel very comfortable that if we adopt that framework, apply that to carbon removal in these open systems, and we're like, hey, everyone's just going to operate off best available science. Now, okay, you have to figure out how you figure that out, but that's a different problem. If you're operating off best available science, you can iterate as the models change, just like fishing companies had to iterate as the models changed. We had to change the type of nets we use. We had to change the practices, where we fished, how we fished, when we fished, based off these models. And I think that carbon removal is going to do the same thing. We're going to proceed forward with the information we have right now. As the science evolves, our iterations will have to evolve in response to that. I'm super comfortable with that. I embrace that. But I think the important thing is if we march forward, we can pour money into understanding these systems. Like Running Tide spends the vast majority of the money that's been invested or purchased from us in you know, carbon removal credits. We spend it all on quantification and understanding the system better. I feel very strongly that we are advancing the understanding of the ocean in the world right now. The systems that we're building, the lab systems we're building, and the sensor systems we're building, and the models we're building are unprecedented. And... We're at like 1% of the way on that journey. Like fast forward five years and, you know, and we're scaling up and removing carbon and pouring that money back into quantification. Like imagine where we're going to get in our understanding. So I think you have a very good point. Right now, closed systems offer higher certainty and more, I will disagree that they're complete boundary condition understanding, but like a more complete boundary condition understanding. But that does not feel like that is a permanent state. These things evolve, these systems will get bigger. We will put thousands and thousands of sensors and run thousands and tens of thousands of lab tests and iterate our models tens of thousands of times. And how great will they get over time as we're able to pour these resources into it? So to me, start with victory condition and imagine what that will look like and what resources will get poured into this along the way and understand that like, hey, if macroalgae ain't it, we find that best available science shifts and we don't think that that's the best way we want to do it. We'll just switch to something else. Like I'll, 
focus more on alkalinity or phytoplankton or enhanced weathering or whatever. The system we're building at Running Tide is agnostic to the intervention. It's a supply chain management company with a bunch of sensors that understand what's happening in the world. We're building our company to accommodate changes in best available sciences. I definitely think victory condition is going to be the title of this podcast episode, but I, I completely agree I, in, in the sense that, you know, we need to be approaching this work with, with building out our understanding of the science in parallel with the building out of the business model, right? We are not going to know what we don't know. And the best available science will not advance until we start doing some of this stuff and right. growing what we're trying to do here. And it sounds like you all have also kind of approached this in a less proprietary way than one would normally anticipate for a company by having this scientific advisory board set up that's overseen by Ocean Visions and some of the academic partnerships that have been established. I'm also really excited about some of the research funding that Dalhousie University in Nova Scotia got, I think was something along the lines of $150 million. That's the ambition that we need to start to see in yeah. the academic sphere as well in building out the systems that you're talking about. It can't just be one company driving this. It has to be this global network of experts and companies and academic institutions that are going to help us build that, I think, better understood boundary system around some of what are currently very open systems and kind of help us understand all of that better. But I think the fundamental pieces, and I think it's something that you mentioned earlier, is that we are investing in the quantification side of this very heavily. And to your point earlier, in terms of where the resources go, DAC versus other things, it does seem a little unbalanced to me as well, because it feels like where we do need to make a lot of investments, if you think about the scale of investments we're going to need to understand how all of these systems, these open systems work, it's going to cost a lot of money. And mm -hmm. so that's why the resources might need to be shifting a little bit over to some of these open systems so that we understand how to improve these over time so they can be a really big part of the carbon removal equation in that victory condition that you're mentioning. You brought up the Dalhousie effort, which I'm so thrilled by, and we're working with them. I'm very excited about what they've built there. I think that's a minimal order of magnitude that needs to pour into this space. I think mean, we could go well past that. But we set up our independent science review board. We're working with academic institutions. We're working with other companies as well to bring them into the folds, so to speak. And I think that what we have to figure out Collectively, and I think that this is going to happen, is what structures make sense when these relationships between government and environmental nonprofits, communities, pure academic institutions, et cetera, like how all these fit together with the market and the people that are actually going to go do the work and the communities that are going to go do the work. How all these things fit together is a game, in my opinion. I think that that's what we have to figure out. And I think we have to be very realistic as a collective you know, people like us and that are engaged in this conversation about how we do carbon removal writ large, just to be very realistic and practical about what each element is good at and how we should proceed on that basis. So for-profit companies are very good at certain things. High reliability systems on an ongoing basis, amazing. Foundational research should not be done by for-profit companies. I don't think for-profit companies should really be publishing much in terms of peer-reviewed articles, I think there's a conflict of interest and it's inappropriate. I think there are very specific instances where it would make sense. Pharmaceutical companies do publish quite a bit. And I think that there are elements of this that would be publishable. But generally, I think that for-profit companies shouldn't be doing foundational research 
or building, but they should be sharing our data with people who do that foundational research so they can inform science. What are governments good at? How should the community play with this? How should these nonprofits that are forming play? But we have to ground that in practically what's going to work because we've seen this, we've played this game out in the future. If you want to move a lot of mass, you engage for-profit companies. If you want to do a tremendous amount of activity, you do like World War II kicked off, you know, New Deal Democrats in charge, not necessarily pro-corporate, but what did they do when it really got down to the squeeze? It was like, we turned to General Motors. We turned to people who could produce things at scale and take, make use of that, you know, the profit motive and you know, capital's desire to flow to where it can grow. So I think we just have to be really thoughtful about how we construct this industry such that we allow capitalism to do what it's good at. And then we make sure that the clearest point is foundational science. We got to keep a firewall there. That's just an integrity issue. But I think through, through independent science review boards and the like, and academic partnerships, we can kind of bridge that gap responsibly. Yeah, I think that's important. I think everyone has a, a role to play, especially when you think about the scale of what we're trying to do. It is, you know, the more time level, you know, industrial growth and and hands-on, by the way, government intervention that was needed is probably a pretty good analog for the scale that we're talking about here. I don't love word metaphors, but this is a wartime effort in terms of what we need to build this century in order to achieve the end state that we want to get to. It's a mobilization effort. Exactly. Well, like war is, it's about destruction. And this right. is not, this is about right. creating and growing and the translatable message that we have to carry to society so that we can engage in an effort of this magnitude, I think is a mobilization. And there's a lot to learn from those instances. But yeah, the war metaphor always, I always feel split on it because this is actually kind of the opposite, right? It's like, it's a war to create, you know, <laughs> this is just a love letter to our kids and to the earth, right? So it's like, are we going to war for that? Not really. It's a much more positive thing than that. But that level of communication and clarity of thought and purpose has to be represented in that. Yeah, absolutely. And as we reach the end of this episode, I'm thinking a lot about your point around, it's like a war for growth. How do we create those conditions for growth from a policy angle? How do we do the creation and the growth and the building of all of this using policy? to get there? That's an enormous question. I'm glad people like you are working on it. There's two big things I think we can do with policy. One is I think that the gap between leadership, you know, politicians, executive branch leadership, or, you know, legislative branch, and then bureaucracy needs to get healed because bureaucracies, they're slow to respond. What we're doing is very new, right? This requires new policy. Existing policy does not accommodate what we're all trying to do. And I consider that like, through permitting reform for flow system activities on land to, you know, ocean-based activities, the policy landscape is, is not set up for this. So we need to heal that. We need to fix the policy landscape to accommodate these things. But the biggest part of that, I think, is connecting the intentions of the people and represent, you know, through their representatives to the bureaucracy. And I think that that's something that is very slow and hard to manage. And I think that we need to push really hard on being like, hey, this is the entity that's governing this specific activity and get really specific about who is the reporting agency, who's governing this, how, why, how are they interacting with others? So I think like really mapping out that bureaucracy and defining who's going to govern these things, I think is super important. And it's important to get done fast. 
Secondly, on the long term, we have to get to a point of government procurement of CDR. But I, I think that the voluntary and compliance markets are going to solve that in the short term that are going to get us on the ramp. So we don't, it's not necessarily needs to preclude it, but policy can help protect companies as they make purchases from these different systems that may or may not deliver to them. I think there's can be policy angles that help kind of smooth out that path. So I'll go back to the best available science piece in fisheries. Quotas get set by best available science in fisheries. If you're following best available science, you're following the law, and then the operating paradigm shifts, it's not like you have to pay back the fish. Or you don't get more because, oh, you should have been catching more of that, but you didn't get to because the science was changed. You don't pay it back. I think what happened with Delta getting sued because they purchased from, I think, I can't remember who they purchased from, some tree offsets. I don't think that's a great precedent because what it does is it's going to make these companies retract from the effort and do everything they can to avoid it. And I think what we need to do is have this, like, if you're operating by best available science and you purchase and they deliver on that basis, that is a retired credit and there's no take backs. I think government policy can help formulate around that. That's just important so people can proceed. If you generate a credit through soil carbon, for instance, and five years later they discover that, oh, that model wasn't right and now here's the new model and that wasn't a credit, you can't go back to a company that purchased in good faith on the best available science and the company that generated that credit through best available science in good faith and try to take it back from them. And I think that's a place where government can step in and be like, hey, here's the rules. You buy something on best available science, you deliver it, it gets audited, delivered to market. That's a retired credit and no one can take it back. And I think that's really important. Best available science is an amazing concept because you know that science will continue to evolve, but we have to allow people to retire past it and settle the accounts moving forward. I can't remember what the IRS look back is on a tax return, you know, <laughs> but it's like, it's long. And I think that in this basis, we actually want it to be quite short so that we can be catalytic to getting companies up and running, industries up and running in that scale. That's actually the best thing we can do is just catalyze this loop of learning and understanding and moving forward on best available science. So we, we do that by allowing people to forgive their liabilities if they meet a certain benchmark. Yeah, and I think by bringing government into that process where they are helping define best available science, I think is a way to do that. And I think what the challenge we have in the carbon removal world right now is, is that, and I, I know that you all, and I know we didn't get a chance to talk about this, but have, you know, Deloitte review or CDR systems, and there are some kind of opportunities to get the kind of protocols and review processes, you know, in place. But once we strengthen this system around what is a transparent and verifiable system around carbon removal that involves government, then you can maybe have a greater expectation that government will help companies that have been trying to abide by those protocols and processes and systems to not be shown for things that don't work well. Frankly, like we're still learning. We're still early. Yeah. And luckily we're operating at a non-climate relevant scale for this. So it's okay for us to be learning and making mistakes and fixing them so yeah. that when we start talking about carbon removal, at massive climate relevant scale, we have figured out all of these pieces, or at least most of these pieces. I know you've all been following the recent UN High Seas Treaty. So let's yeah. kind of zoom out beyond any kind of individual jurisdiction, but think kind of more broadly here. Can you tell us about the significance of the UN High Seas Treaty and implications it has for ocean CDR? Yeah, I mean, you know, without getting into like a word by word dissection of it, I think that one, it's 30 years overdue, frankly. <laughs> 
I also don't think it precludes ocean CDR. I mean, if you're trying to protect biodiversity in the ocean, let me put it this way. All I care about is like being able to catch fish. That's not all I care about, but that's a big part of my life. Just thinking about fish. I will say this about protecting the ocean. If you're not doing ocean CDR, you are not protecting the ocean. Straight up. Nothing we do on a conservation side, I don't care what you're doing for marine protected areas or zero areas, whatever. Ocean heating, acidification, do not care where you draw your line. Those are the twin horsemen of the apocalypse. They're going to kill everything no matter what you do. So you can say, oh, I'm protecting this native kelp forest. Well, good luck when you have an ocean heat wave, right? And or good luck when you have an acidification event, which we've seen and documented the devastation. You know, I just look at it as like, this high seas treaty is great. It doesn't preclude one by text and also just like by, by intent. It doesn't preclude people doing ocean CDR at massive scale. In fact, I think it implicitly pushes us to do it because what it is doing is saying that this is a critical part of the earth system that needs to be protected. It needs to be protected from direct human activity, but it also needs to be protected from indirect human activity, which is too much carbon in the fast cycle and ocean heating. So I'm glad that it, something like that is finally out there, but I don't think it precludes ocean-based activities at all. If anything, I think it solidifies the duty to intervene on behalf of these ecosystems that collectively we're saying are so critical to the future of humanity and the earth system. So on a text basis, I think it is a thing and it's fine. I applaud the intent behind it. And I'm really excited that something like that's finally out there and recognizes that these are critical ecosystems that we need to protect. It's helpful to think about all of this. As you said, this is a very global yeah. thing. It doesn't matter where, where we really are. It's something we need to take care of. Marty, thanks so much for the time. How can people learn more or get in touch? Yeah, we publish a lot on our website. That's where we push our white papers, research plans, et cetera. You know, it always takes it takes us a few months to consolidate information after we do an intervention and collect all that data, but that's the place to keep up to date is kind of the blog on the website. So runninghigh.com, obviously, you know, try to be as open as possible with people. So we really encourage emails and, you know, people reaching out to us on our website and we're super happy to engage with any of the stakeholders involved in the space, but specifically companies that are looking to get into nature deployed systems, love to build that ecosystem and academic researchers and governments like happy to engage. So yeah, that's, that's where to do it. Mostly that's on the website. Thanks so much, Marty. I really appreciate the time and thank you for what you're doing. Yeah. All right. Take care. Since this episode was recorded, Running Tide has completed its first carbon removal deployment season in Iceland, which resulted in the delivery of ocean-based carbon removal credits to their first customer, Shopify. The company is also a founding signatory of the Reykjavik Protocol, a set of supplier best practices designed to responsibly grow the nature-deployed credit industry. I'll provide links to these updates in the show notes.